I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Kevin Pogue on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm doing great, Levy. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. You grew up in Kentucky. I did. I grew up in Lexington, Kentucky in a horse farm country. Went to the University of Kentucky and then got myself out west as soon as I could. But you were doing a little geology work in Kentucky. Well, I got my undergrad degree there, you know, and so I, I certainly did my fair share of exploring the geology of Kentucky and rock climbing and caving and, you know, all my outdoor adventures. But most of my research has been in the Western United States or actually, uh, and a fair amount over in Asia. How did you develop an interest in geology? Uh, as a kid, just driving around in Kentucky, um, I was fascinated with like the road cuts on the highways, which in Kentucky, they build the uh, four lane highways by just blasting through one hill and dumping it into the next valley. And so as you drive along, there are these walls of rock that are continually changing. And I was fascinated with why is this one different from the next one? And occasionally those, you know, cliffs expose interesting things and fossils. And and I, you know, from a very young age, it's all I wanted to be was a geologist and uh, study, the, study the earth and the rocks and how they got to be how they are. What was the next move? You went to Asia next or you went to the West Coast? I went to uh, Idaho for a while, actually, and I got a master's degree there and worked in the Rocky Mountains um, and then and fell in love with teaching uh, when I was a teaching assistant and then went on to Oregon State University because they offered me the opportunity to do research in the Himalayan mountains in northern Pakistan and as sort of an outdoor guy who loved climbing and and things like that, I, you know, I just couldn't pass up on that. So I uh, went to Oregon State and uh, ended up going to northern Pakistan to do research, uh, four or five trips over there for my research. Is that a diverse geological area? It's uh, one of the most amazing geologic uh, areas on the planet. You know, it's an active collision where two plates are coming together and the rocks are being folded and deformed and the the geography is spectacular, huge canyons, and and uh, just the rock exposures are amazing. And and it's also interesting because a lot of the area is very remote or very difficult to get access to politically or logistically, and so the geology there just wasn't very well known. 
And I've always kind of seen myself as a bit of a pathfinder, explorer kind of guy. And the opportunity to go to an area that was sort of a white spot on the geologic map was just too tempting to turn down. So I uh, loved it over there. What are the logistics of getting there? Do you have to hire guides or go in by helicopter? Or um, I, you know, it's a long flight halfway around the world to get there first off. And I, I was based in Peshawar. Uh, which is in the news a lot these days as being, you know, a, kind of a crazy place. And even then, it was a crazy place in the 80s, early 90s. Uh, I was there when the Russians were in uh, Afghanistan, and it was sort of the center of political intrigue with KGB and CIA operatives, you know, bombs going off all the time. You know, and I was in my 20s, and it just seemed like a cool—I felt like I was Indiana Jones or something, running around the bazaars of Peshawar with— meeting mercenaries and people that might be CIA operatives, you know, and then I'd go out in the field and, and go into refugee camps and, um, you know, and I was working in tribal areas and would have to go to the tribal councils and get permission to enter the tribal areas and then would be accompanied by a couple of, you know, uh, interesting looking guys that were heavily armed who would just follow me around wherever I went, make sure I didn't get kidnapped or shot at. Yeah. And at the time, I thought that was just the coolest thing, you know, to be doing geology like that, you know, and in retrospect, you know, I'm not sure it would be as appealing to me now, uh, especially with being married and having children. But uh, then it was just the epitome of uh, adventurous geology. So, I mean, some political instability, some warfare, and then probably also some drug trade going on. A lot of drug trade, political instability, you know, but if I had to say what I felt most threatened by, it was just driving on the roads, uh, you know, because they really drive like crazy over there, and, and, and there's just carnage on the roads all the time. So, I, you know, I heard gunfire a lot, and, you know, I guess I should have been more afraid of being kidnapped and held for ransom. But what I was most actually afraid of when I was over there was dying in a car accident because uh, the roads are bad and people drive like crazy. But uh, it was a great time. And I think I made a big contribution to Pakistan geology. And I worked with the Pakistan Geological Survey and some of the universities over there and and helped, I think, raise the standards a little bit uh, for them. Still have good friends over there. Wish I could visit, but that's uh, probably not a good place to go these days. What was the segue out of going there and doing the work that you do now? It was 9-11. So I actually applied for and got a couple of more grants to go back to Pakistan and was continuing my work there after graduate school and had another uh, you know, grant submitted to keep doing work over there. And 9-11 happened. And suddenly, instead of being sort of the good guys who were helping to fight off the Russian invasion, we were the bad guys. We were the invaders and the same people, you know, in those tribal areas. You know, imagine now being American and going into tribal areas in northwestern Pakistan. Uh, you know, you hear them in the news all the time, places like Waziristan and places like that. And so uh, that was the end of Pakistan research for me. And um, at the same time, uh, the wine industry was really starting to boom in Walla Walla. I was getting interested in it, knew a lot of people involved in the industry, have always enjoyed wine. People were starting to ask me questions because I knew a lot about the local geology. We started talking about how that related to wine. Uh, someone thrust James Wilson's terroir book into my hands, and a lot of uh, light bulbs went off. Like, wow, you know. Uh, we don't know what we should know, and we're not doing things as as uh, intelligently as we could in terms of 
figuring out where to plant and what to plant. And I thought, wow, I could, this be a great way to do research, stay near home, help the industry. You know, it was this win, win, win. And so I just made a commitment to just completely change uh, gears and go into something, uh, something different and haven't looked back. So you sort of looked around at where you were you, and you said, well, this is a burgeoning industry that could use some of the expertise that I have applied to foreign countries right here. Yeah. Well, in a way, it's kind of interesting. You know, over there, I was exploring around in the hills and mapping the geology and filling in blank spots in the map and sort of felt like I was, you know, uh, exploring new terrain. And I kind of feel like I'm doing the same thing you know, in Washington these days where I'm out searching for new terroirs, you know, and I'm gathering data on climate and soils and geology and geomorphology and integrating that data and saying, wow, look, I found just found this great new place, you know, that I think would be a fabulous Syrah site, you know, and maybe you guys ought to look at this, you know, instead of planting the grapes that you happen to like in the lands you happen to own, maybe we should think about actually going out and looking for ground that would grow spectacular grapes of a certain variety, you know, and I mean, you don't have to listen to me, but, you know, I can think I can point you in the right direction uh, if you if you want to do that. So it's been a lot of fun. So you came across James Wilson's book, which you mentioned. Yeah. And what did you pick up from that text? Well, it's interesting. I, I picked up mostly from that text, I picked up um, that the French think it's exceptionally important that this this relationship between uh, geology and soils and climate and and wine and that it's all important and it basically dictates what kind of wine you're making and I you know that was kind of new to me you know I knew French wines were named after the regions not after the grape but I never thought too much about that uh, really that the region was all about you know its physical characteristics it's not just a name you know if it's burgundy it's you know it's limestone you know and if it's coat roti it's coat brune or coat blonde you know and 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 that was just really driven home to me that you know that the all important thing wasn't the winemaker the all important thing was the vineyard site and the celebration of the uniqueness of that site and its physical characteristics uh, was paramount, you know, and I, you know, I thought, wow, you know, uh, that's really cool. And so I thought, well, you know, we can find really great sites. We have the opportunity to do that. We're at a stage and we can kind of shortcut 2000 years of trial and error, figuring out where to plant what grape, because we have all these tools at our disposal. We have geographic information systems, we have soil surveys, we have geologic maps, climate analyses, you know, I have little temperature monitors I can go stick in the ground and air and 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 gather data about things and you know I can basically say no that's not a good place or this should be a really good place and so we can do a little bit of research and uh, steer people in the right directions so there are historical benchmarks and better tools and you can refer to both yeah absolutely you know and you can the historical benchmarks I mean you know and I've made multiple trips to Europe to visit the grand examples of famous terroirs, you know, and I look at those, you know, sites and I think about, okay, this is producing spectacular Syrah or, or, or Pinot Noir or whatever. And I think, okay, can't help but think, where, how do we emulate that? You know, and I don't think we should try to 
you know, overly emulate someplace because we have our own terroirs. Uh, but it certainly puts you in the ballpark, right? If you think about the conditions where great Syrahs are produced or great Pinot Noirs are produced, you can be enter the ballpark and then you start doing your own research to sort of narrow it down and look for uh, some of the qualities like rocky soils or steeper slopes or certain ranges of temperatures that sort of get you close to the places where these vines have reached their sort of pinnacle of expression. And you had written some field guide work to Washington State, and so people started to reach out to you about that. Yeah, I you know, I had published a little field guide to the geology of southeast Washington uh, with one of my colleagues and had been leading field trips for years and years and years in that area. And I knew the local geology as well as anyone. And actually, there were a couple of uh, other people at Washington State University who actually started doing terroir research a little bit before me. Uh, and, and their research was basically, they would go out and and after these viticultural areas became established, they would just publish summaries of what the soils and the climate were like. And so they, the Walla Walla viticultural area, Walla Walla Valley viticultural area had been established. And they wanted to publish a little paper saying, you know, this is what the soils and the climate is like of, you know, and so... Uh, Larry Miner, you know, reached out to me and said, "Hey, you've written this guy book. You know what? You know, let's. What do you got to tell me about this?" And I thought, "Wow, here's somebody actually doing some geologic, you know, uh, work on this." Um, another guy, Alan Bosako, is a soil scientist at WSU. He's uh, he was also doing some some work on that. And I thought, okay, what these guys are doing is they're basically compiling what's known, you know, and then just putting it in a in out there for people so that they can have a summary of this. But, you know, what we have the ability to do is take it to the next level, actually gather our own data. Like, rather than use, say, one temperature data station within a whole AVA, go out and put 50 temperature monitors in 50 different vineyards and look at the whole range of values and let those run for years, you know. And then you can compare site to site throughout rather than just trying to characterize a whole AVA with one ag weather station, right? And so that's I started doing that kind of research. I started putting out temperature monitors at various aspects, slopes, elevations. Uh, I started taking soil samples, getting my own soil analyses from different vineyards. I started doing things like checking out how having rocky versus rocky soils versus grass-covered vineyards affected grape cluster temperatures, you know, to try to get an understanding of the effects of terroir. And working with students, we started chemical our own chemical analyses of soils describing profiles and differences so adding to the database rather than just summarizing the database uh, i i think uh minor and basaka's work was really great and pioneering and they did a you know a great service by explaining the terroir of a, several of these avas to the general public but there's much more we can find out about them and and uh, so i'm trying to sort of take it to the next level i guess so when you started to present your work what was the reception was it oh. similar to the kind of work you'd done in pakistan or oh well it's pretty interesting you know if you I, it was uh seductive <laughs> because you know i would do this work in pakistan which i thought was very important and groundbreaking and really shedding a light on the, how the Himalayas were formed and their structure. And, and you're like, dude, I almost died for yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> like, amazing, you know, and I was, you know, eating crazy food in the middle of nowhere for a month, you know, and, you know, and all this. And then you'd go to a big geologic conference and there'd be 
Himalayan section, you know, with talks about the Himalayas, and you'd have maybe 40 or 50 people come to your talk. And of those 40 or 50, there are maybe two or three that could really understand what you were talking about and uh, that had any experience at all in the area. And, um, you know, that was great. But, you know, now I, you know, start, I start working, presenting the results of my research on the variation of temperatures at different elevations in the Columbia Basin. And I've got 350 people hanging on my every word, you know, and uh, super excited about it. So it's gratifying <laughs> to feel that the work you're doing is uh, appreciated by people and and is used by people to actually uh, help what they're doing right now. I think that the work I did in Pakistan was great, and but there's something about a lot of people being excited about your work that's very seductive. And so I, I have to admit that that's kept me going and uh, just wants, you know, it keeps pushing me to do more and more. It's yeah. nice to look out into an audience and see more than five people and two Yetis, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, it, the I have to admit the wine work is seductive and it has nice fringe benefits, uh, you know, good wine and food and, and really interesting, passionate personalities that you come in contact with. Who were some of the first winemakers or vineyard people that reached out to you? Christophe Barone at Cayuse, uh, who's a very, very passionate terroir uh, enthusiast and whose who's, uh, wines really reflect terroir. He's one of the first people that I, I work closely with. But I've worked with a lot of people that have just come to Pacific Northwest in general, and Walla Walla in particular, to, you know, just live the dream and put in a vineyard and... Uh, you know, some of the bigger wineries uh, are, you know, Cataretta. I've done so much. I'm work, I've been working with Corliss uh, lately. I mean, there's a huge, a huge list of uh, people I've done a little bit of work for. And when they reach out to you, what is it that you provide them? I mean, what do you say? This is um, what I can do. You know, I look at, you know, a lot of times we dig pits at potential vineyard sites and we look at soil profiles and we talk about what are the how's that going to affect grape growing here you know what what do you have great water holding capacity not great water holding capacity what kind of minerals are available in these soils uh, what might you need to do to prepare these soils to make it a better vineyard site i put out temperature monitors let them go for a year or more and then compare those to other sites um, and then we recognize whether there's in you know a frost or freeze risk or what the diurnal temperature variation is just characterize the the vineyard site in terms of its its temperature profiles you know we look at soil chemistry and organic content and a lot of things <laughs> so what can be the cost and timeline for developing an undeveloped piece of land into a vineyard well i mean it can just depends on who they are and their resources i mean if you want to be very careful about it and you want to be sure you might want to get you know a year or two's worth of temperature data uh, on a site just so that you can characterize it find out whether or not you know, no surprises in terms of your frost or freeze risk or whatever. And, and you might say, well, what, what's one or two years? You know, climate's a long-term thing. But I have, I have big, a lot of records from a lot of different sites, and there's several sites I just maintain all the time. So I can always come, and I know what those are, and I can compare them to sort of the sites that I have. And uh, generally, the differences between sites are consistent year in and year out. So if a site's 
colder than a site one year, it'll always be colder than that site every year. So uh, you can get pretty good approximations, you know, just with a couple of years of data. And um, so that would be what you would do if you were, you know, being super careful. Uh, and most people have at least a year b between when they acquire a property and when the plants grow in the ground. And I tell them, you know, we should put out some monitors and, 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 you know, if it's a large property that's got some topographic variability, you know, you want to put multiple monitors in different places to see what your variations are. And then, and you may have a big enough property that you want to know what part of it you want to plant and maybe one part of it you don't want to plant. So, yeah, that, that would be the first thing. But I mean, you know, you could, if you had, a, if you found you had a good site, you know, from acquiring the property to getting the vines in the ground might only be a year or two. And then, you know, you'll have fruit that you can make into wine in three years after that. So from acquiring the property to wine in hand, uh, you know, is five years sort of minimum, you know, it might, might be six or seven years. How should I understand Washington State geologically and climactically? The Most of the grapes come from the Columbia Basin, which is on the east side of the Cascade Mountains. And it's sheltered from the Pacific coast climate, which is what Washington's famous for, lots of rain, et cetera, et cetera. But there's this big wall called the Cascades that basically says... Uh, you shall not pass to the big Pacific storms. And so... The Gandalf of the Mountain The Gandalf, yeah, so. of the, you know, the Pacific storms are the Balrog <laughs> and the and the mountains are Gandalf. Anyway, they... Uh, so the storms wall up against the Cascades. It sort of extracts all the moisture out of the clouds and then the clouds kind of dribble over the other side. The winds downslope and downsloping winds are heated by compression and dry out even further. And so... Just on the east side of the Cascade Mountains is a big desert belt uh, where a lot of areas get less than 10 inches of annual precipitation. And the, and the native vegetation is sagebrush, if that. Uh, and they're sand dunes, and uh, it's dry. But fortunately, there's some, uh, and that's what about probably more than half of the state is like that. And so when people, especially on the east coast, think of Washington, they think of Seattle, and they get rains all the time. And it doesn't rain all the time. And it actually, annual precipitation in New York City is greater than Seattle. Seattle's 37 inches. I think New York City's probably more like 45 or something like that. Uh, what it does is it drizzles a lot and it's cloudy a lot. Uh, but it doesn't ever rain hard in Seattle like it does in a big thunderstorm in New York City. But anyway, well, but once you get over the Cascade Mountains, it just dries out completely. The uh, And it gets very very dry, hot and sunny all summer long. You know, it's not uncommon to go two or three months without a drop of rain or hardly a cloud in the sky. And uh, so the climate's more like Provence or something, you know, uh, without the thunderstorms. And it's just brilliant sunny skies day after day after day. And agriculture would be impossible over there, except for the fact that there's several huge rivers, uh, including Columbia River, one of the biggest in the country, flowing right through the middle of the desert. It's sort of like the Nile of the eastern Washington desert. And there's a huge project, uh, you know, to irrigation projects that come off of that, off the Yakima River, the Columbia River, and to some extent the Walla Walla River and the Snake River. So there are all these rivers flowing into this desert, and people have taken advantage of that and uh, irrigate it. So you've got this very dry climate. Uh, every, pretty much everything has to be irrigated. There's only uh, when you're on the edges of the basin, are there a few areas where you can get away with dry farming grapes, but most everything is irrigated. Uh, the soils are typically made of luss, uh, which is 
wind-deposited silt that was derived from these uh, the largest documented floods in Earth history called the Missoula Floods, which uh, occurred during the last glaciation about 12,000 years ago when these uh, glaciers came down out of Canada, dammed a tributary to the Columbia River, created a lake that was about twice the size of Lake Erie in volume, and that lake burst through the glacier dam, roared across eastern Washington down the Columbia River, and um, and in some places it eroded the bedrock, in other places it deposited silt and sand, and then the winds kept up, picked up, blew that silt back and draped all of eastern Washington with thick layers of silt. And most of the grapes are planted in a topsoil that's based on that silt that's derived from those floods. And interestingly, the glacier silts, which carry all the sediment from these glaciers and up in northern Idaho, has kind of a composition of granite. But the bedrock for the whole Columbia Basin is basalt, which is the same lava rock that Hawaiian Islands are made of. So with this black uh, volcanic rock, it's one of the largest areas of basalt on any continent on Earth. And, and so our bedrock is fairly consistently basalt everywhere. But on top of it sets a silt that's derived from a completely different rock type, granite. So it's kind of interesting for the vines, because if they can root, they're rooted into this sort of uh, soil that has a granitic component to it. But if the roots get through that, they get into a completely different suite of minerals in the basalt, which is enriched in iron, magnesium, calcium, whereas the granitic soils above are more enriched in potassium, sodium, things like that. So it's a it's very consistent as opposed to someplace like Napa Valley, which uh has dramatically different geology in a small area they have the napa volcanics they have the great valley sequence they have the franciscan rocks and all those are very different types of rocks and they're intermingled along faults and it's very complicated and in some places the streams are bringing rocks from different types of places and mixing them together so they have a lot of variability on a small scale and columbia basin doesn't have that kind of small scale variability in rock types. Uh, we're pretty consistent. Have you seen specific wines where there's an example of, of roots that are in the granite and there's an example of roots in the basalt and you can taste the differences? Yeah, I think that, you know, there are plenty of vineyards where the lust, the windblown silt, is so thick that the roots never get out of it and they're just in thick silt deposits. And then there are others, you know, where the vines root through into the basalt below or where they're planted in crushed basalt bedrock where the soils are very thin. And yeah, I think there are differences in those. I think you get uh, stronger aromas, funky and meaty and dark. You know, I don't want to, you know, say that the wines have dark aromas because basalt is dark. That's the kind of thing that drives me crazy as a terroir guy. But they are, they are, they tend to be, I don't know if, you know, people use the term bloody, you know, sometimes. And I think the, the wines that are from the more just pure silt tend to be bright fruit, not so, um, meaty or, uh, or, or, and not, and they don't seem to have as strong of an aroma, uh, you know, as, but I realize a lot of winemaking, you know, uh, there's a lot of effects in winemaking, uh, that affect things, but it would be interesting 
there are only a few people I know that are, are doing that right now, which are making wines in exactly the same way in these different terroirs. Ryan Van is one producer who has uh, vineyards that are growing in almost pure basalt cobblestones in one of their vineyards and another in almost pure silt loams. And those wines taste completely different from one another it, along the lines of what I just described to you. So... Um, They're a good example to make that comparison. Waters Winery produced four vineyard designate Syrahs, uh, where you could see really strong contrasts in terroir, uh, and they and they came out along those lines too. The one the rockier vineyards tended to have more earthy, smoky, meaty sort of components. So, what AVAs are in the Columbia Basin? Which which name should I be thinking? Oh, a bunch. (laughs) You know the 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 Columbia Valley which is sort of the big overwhelming AVS, I think the second or third largest in the U.S. And so it covers a vast area and much of that area couldn't host grapevines either because it's just desert land that has no irrigation. There's some of it that's too high. So it just was kind of drawn to sort of encompass every place where, you know, a big circle to enclose every place where they thought you could possibly grow grapes in on that side of the mountains. And then there are a lot of AVAs inside the Columbia Basin. And, they're, you know, like anywhere else, new ones are coming up all the time. And when you think about the ones on the east side of the mountains, there's just outside the Columbia, Columbia Valley AVA is the Columbia Gorge AVA, which is wherever the Columbia River cuts through the Cascade Mountains. And so it's a kind of an interesting... Uh, AVA in that it has elements, some of the, the moist air leaks through this gap in the Cascade Mountains. And so it is kind of a hybrid uh, of west and east sides uh, and an exciting place. And they, they make some really great uh, Rieslings and Gewurztraminers and Pinot Noirs there, you know, that are uh, some stunning wines. It's a little cooler climate because some of the cool, moist air from the west side leaks through the gap there. Is that the same area that's kind of famous for windsurfing? It is. It's right, the windsurfing area is right in the middle of the AVA. You know, Hood River, Mosier are the two towns there. Uh, there's a... Uh, producer there, a new producer, uh, Analemma Wines, which are, uh, are absolutely amazing. There's a fellow in Walla Walla making Gewurztraminer from their two Dowsett family. They're just, uh, they're some of the best. Uh, the Analemma and Dowsett Gewurzes are some of the best I've ever tasted from North America. It's really a great terroir for that. And they're planting at fairly high elevations there, 1,500 feet or so beautiful area to visit too. Just stunning views of Mount Hood and Mount Adams, these big snow-capped volcanoes that have snow year-round and huge gorge with, you know, the Columbia River flowing through it. It's, it's just a stunningly beautiful area. Because I remember flying kites at the Mary Hill Museum and it, yeah. was, it was like, you know, easy to do. It's yeah. quite, oh, yeah. quite yeah. windy. Yeah, it's almost never not blowing there, yeah. And that the wind is caused because of the air pressure differences on either side of the cascade. So usually, you know, in the summertime, there's all this heat driving air to rise from the eastern Washington deserts. And uh, then there's the cool Pacific Ocean that has high pressure. So you have this huge pressure gradient on either side of the mountains. And the only place to relieve that pressure difference is through the Columbia Gorge. So there are these howling winds just racing through the gorge all the time, blowing uh, in the summer from uh, west to east, you know, as this cool air tries to rush through 
to replace all that warm air that's rising out of the desert. Uh, it's it's consistently windy, which is why it's such a great windsurfing area. But then the other AVAs you think about are Walla Walla Valley, uh, which has a huge range of terroirs just within that AVA. The Yakima Valley, likewise. Uh, Red Mountain is a pretty famous, especially for making Cabernet Sauvignon, which is really hot. It's one of the hottest places in, in eastern Washington. Uh, a lot of good grapes are coming off the Waluk Slope AVA. There's also, uh, I think, a, an AVA that bears watching is the Lake Chelan AVA, which is this beautiful glacial lake. And it's interesting in that it's the one area in eastern Washington that's in, a, in, in an AVA that has bedrock that's not basalt. It has granite bedrock. Uh, and there's this beautiful, deep glacial lake right through the middle of the AVA. It's a very popular vacation site in a very beautiful place. Um, the Horse Heaven Hills AVA is where some great wines have been produced. Some of the Kilsita Creek wines are coming out of the Horse Heaven Hills AVA and that have earned, you know, big scores. We're generally considered too hot, too dry, too sunny, not cloudy enough, you know, to have Pinot Noir. But I, I think there's potential actually on the east side of the mountains if you go to higher elevations, like in the Blue Mountain foothills of Walla Walla to grow Pinot Noir. Oh, yeah. Uh, is that true? Are there oh, people absolutely. doing that now? There are people doing that now. Uh, in fact, one of the best Oregon Pinot Noirs I've ever tasted was made by uh, Rick Small at Woodward Canyon Winery in Walla Walla from grapes grown on the Oregon side of the Walla Walla viticultural area in the foothills of the Blue Mountains at uh, fairly high elevation. So I think in Walla Walla, we have about four Pinot Noir vineyards. We have about four Pinot Noir vineyards right now. So, uh, and I think there's potential to go up even higher into the mountains there and dry farm some of these cooler climate grapes because uh, Walla Walla is on the edge, on the eastern edge of the Columbia Basin, and the land rises towards another mountain range called the Blue Mountains, where it gets up to five, 6,000 feet, you know, and there's still plenty of snow there right now. And uh, so you can sort of adjust your climate by moving up and down in, in the Blue Mountains there. And, and as you get closer and farther into the mountains, you get, you know, your rainfall creeps up to the point where you could get away with dry farming. So. What are other grape varieties that might have a future potential in Washington State that are emerging? Uh, ooh, good question. I think we haven't realized our potential with Riesling. Uh, I think we have incredible potential for Riesling. Um, it's interesting that when Washington first took off as a grape growing region, people saw it as sort of a fringe place to grow grapes because it's far north. It's colder. There's these big, you know, winter freezes we have occasionally. So some of the very first vinifera vineyards that went in were, they said, well, we better plant the coldest, most cold hardy grape we can find in the warmest place because they were really kind of freaked out that they weren't going to be able to get grapes to grow. So there are these amazing old Riesling vines planted in some of the hottest places in the state. And they, as you might expect they make pretty flabby rieslings you know and i and i think we're just now starting to realize wow you know it's not really that extreme and maybe you know we should be planting riesling at cooler higher elevation sites where the acidity is preserved and the wines are crisper and you know and so i think there's potential for uh, i think we can really bump up the level of our our riesling i think you know the syrahs are amazing and i think syrah is the most in my mind the most terroir driven 
grape out there. I mean, it expresses terroir better than anything, which is, I think it's blessing and it's curse. You know, it's to people that love wine and appreciate differences based on terroir, they just celebrate that. And for people that when they buy Syrah off the shelf and they want, you know, they think of it as Budweiser and they want all Budweiser to taste the same and they get a Syrah from two different places and they taste very differently. They think that's not what I want. You know, I think it's one thing that's hurt Syrah is the fact that it's a great terroir wine, you know. So I think, you know, we have to educate people about that. Uh, I think uh, Merlot is coming back after the the sideways debacle uh, and we grow Merlot uh, fabulously. Uh, in Walla Walla uh, and and throughout the Columbia Basin. Uh, Why do you think that is? Is there clay somewhere? Or You know, we don't have much clay. We don't have uh, a lot of clay. That's a good question. Uh, Merlot is a, an early ripener, and we sort of, it's good to be an early ripener in uh, Washington because we just can't let things hang forever like you can in California. Generally, there will be a killing freeze sometime in October. Sometimes it occurs in early October. Sometimes it occurs in late October. And uh, if you plant something like Merlot, and it's always going to ripen, you know, by October. And so uh, it, it fits. You know, we're at the latitude of the Columbia Basin, you know, is midway between Bordeaux and Burgundy. We're right at the same latitude. So we have the same sun angle and length of day characteristics as that those parts of France do, you know. Our climate, you know, is different in terms of, you know, humidity and cloudiness and things like that. But in terms of sun angle and length of day, we're much more like the classic wine grape regions of France than, you know, than is California, which is a lot farther south, you know, in the latitude of Sicily or something. So that might, I don't know, maybe that's a key to why Merlot, uh, you know, our length of days drops off dramatically in September and it cools down very noticeably in the mornings, you know, which kind of shuts things down and grapes don't keep ripening overnight anymore, you know, helps preserve some acidity. And I, th- I think that's a, a big factor, uh, just that we can't let things just hang forever. And and grapes sort of, the acidity is just preserved naturally because of cooling down going into September. And know. what about Cabernet? I think we do Cabernet really well. I don't... Um, there, you know, there's been some huge high-scoring cabs coming out of, you know, if you think of Leonetti in Kelsita Creek and a bunch of the Red Mountain cabs and uh, people like Bob Betts have been making beautiful Cabernet Sauvignon. So we do, we can grow Cabernet very well. And Cabernet's proven to be pretty winter hardy. And uh, we've had, you know, we're subjected occasionally to these Every seven or eight years, it seems like we get this big killing freeze come down out of Canada and hits the Columbia Basin, and the cab seems to bounce right back from that, and and a lot of times, you know, survive better than a lot of things, and so it it's proven in and out, you know, in you know, time and time again to be a a survivor, uh, and um, and and so I think we make great cabs, but a lot of people make great cabs. And so, I, you know, I don't know if we're going to be able to hang our hat on cab. I don't, you know, people are always asking, you know, what's going to be Washington's variety that they, uh, and uh, that's hard to say. Uh, and, and, you know, it's a good question about if you even need to do that. I think it might be more at the AVA level than at the state level, right? Or even the Columbia Basin is so big, it's kind of silly to even say, this is the variety of the Columbia Basin because the range of elevations is from like 300 to 3,000 feet. You know, that's a pretty big range. So uh, I think you need to get down to 
the smaller sub AVA level before you start thinking about a representative variety for a particular part of the Columbia uh, Basin. And you did some work around putting it forward the application for the Rocks AVA. Yeah. And what is the Rocks AVA and, and what was that work like for you? Well, it's uh, been great. So uh, a lot of this is driven, all of, you know, grapes were grown, wine grapes were grown in the Walla Walla Valley, which is where the Rocks District is located. Wine grapes were grown there in the 1870s, 1880s, planted by Italian immigrants. There was a thriving wine making industry there in the late 1800s that, you know, slowly waned as orchards came in or whatever, but there are still vines planted down there in, in that part of the valley that go back to the 1930s. They were planted by Italian immigrants, you know, and you can occasionally find these old wild vines. But they um, basically, viticulture died out and didn't sort of come back in the Walla Walla Valley until the 70s with the Leonetti. Uh, and then uh, and then Christophe Barone came over from France, from Champagne, and, and did an internship in the Walla Walla Valley. And went exploring around for terroirs and, and sort of rediscovered this, this grape growing area near the Oregon town of Milton Freewater. So actually this Rocks District is in Oregon, on the Oregon side of the Walla Walla Valley viticultural area. And he said, wow, it looks just like Chateau Neuf de Pop. It's just nothing but rocks on the surface. And it is, it's nothing but basalt cobblestones. Literally, if you look at one of the vineyards there, you don't see any typical dirt. You just see basalt cobblestones. And he's like, this is perfect. And so he planted his vineyards there and the wines instantly received acclaim. And of course, other people said, what's going on here? You know, and other people started buying land in the area and making wines. And interestingly, they had the same flavor profile. And, and, and for me, it was one of the first, you know, sort of vindications of the whole terroir idea, because, you know, I've been to tastings, blind tastings, where I've been able to easily pick out every Syrah made from the Rocks District because they're that distinctive, uh, and and a lot of wine critics have noticed the same thing. Anyway, a, a bunch of growers came to me and said, you know, this is a pretty special area, and we'd like to um, turn it into a new AVA. And I'd been doing research there uh, with students and whatnot, and I knew what was going on. I said, uh, sure, I'll I'll write that petition for you. And you know, there are a couple of the established players there, like like Cayuse and, and Ryan Van, you know, weren't, weren't as, as happy about that as maybe some of the other people because, you know, they had little to gain from it, you know, and, and something to lose if people started putting that on their labels and they weren't making such great wine. I think that that plays out in almost every new AVA that goes out there. The long established people are leery because uh, they don't want someone to drag down their reputation or ride along on their coattails. But there were about 10 or 12 growers that were really excited about doing this. So, so uh, I just, I told them I would only do it if it was an AVA that was terroir driven as much as possible, uh, because nothing drives me crazier than seeing AVA boundaries that are highways or lines of power lines or things like that, where there's no difference in the terroir. No, there are AVAs that have that, who's that are on power line right away. The boundary is a power line right away. Which is no sillier than a highway, right? Highways aren't built where soils change, you know, or where climate change. They're just highways, right? And there are, you know, uh, there are plenty of AVA boundaries that are highways or irrigation canals or power line right-of-ways or things that have nothing to do with terroir, right? And I, and I, 
I understand it's a lot about marketing and sometimes you have to find something that approximates your boundary of your area. But I think if you work at it a little bit, you can find something better than a, a, a power line. So anyway, I said, well, I want to, you know, I want this to just be about this rocky soil, which is an alluvial fan formed where the Walla Walla River comes out of the Blue Mountains and spills out into the, to the Walla Walla Valley. And, uh, and it's a special place for growing grapes. So I, uh, you know, your, your, your hands are tied a little bit by the TTB rules, which require you to draw AVA boundaries by, by using things that appear on published U.S. Geological Survey maps. So you can't just draw any line anywhere you want to. Oh, is that true? No, it's, yeah. So you have to approximate sort of natural terroir boundaries by short line segments by saying, okay, I'm gonna go from the intersection of these two roads to where this creek co- crosses this topographic contour to, and then I'll follow this topographic contour to this railroad line and I'll follow the railroad line to here. And you try to link together things on the map to approximate, if you're trying to, you know, some people aren't trying to define terroir, but I was, you know, and whereas the soil series boundary is this incredibly sinuous thing that goes all over the place on the landscape, you can't say that it is the soil series boundary that is the AVA boundary. You have to approximate the soil series boundary with a series of straight line segments or, or things that appear on maps. So um, That feels like a fundamental miscue of the system. Yeah, and it felt that way to Christoph Barone, too. He's not, you know, and, and that part of it, uh, he's not very happy with because, and I and I understand, you know, he wants it to be as good as it can possibly be, you know, and follow just based purely on terroir. But you, it's kind of it's hard to do that under the present system. But I also understand the other side, which is where you're trying to communicate this boundary to someone else. If it's this incredibly sinuous thing, you know, that you would have to that would have to be surveyed onto the landscape somehow. How would you? just go out there and show someone where it is and where it isn't, you know? And, and then there's some other problems like, let's say you say it's where the soil contains cobblestones and where it doesn't have cobblestones is outside the boundary. Where do you draw that line when, when there's 50% cobblestones, 25% cobblestones, 85% cobblestones, where do you draw that line? You know, do you do hundreds and thousands of soil analysis for numbers of cobblestones, you know, it becomes kind of crazy and impractical. So I understand the desire to make it as terroir driven as possible, but I also understand the, the practicality of trying to draw that line and, you know, legal things could ensue like, well, you said I had 76% cobblestones, you know, which makes me inside, you know, but so-and-so says I only have 74% cobblestones, which would put me out, you know, so you can see where I'm going with this. So there's practical, so um, anyway, so I drew, you know, a, the boundaries so that I think it's 97% of the land within the boundaries is one soil series. And I don't think that there's any other AVA in the United States that has 97% of its land in one soil series. So I made it what I think is the most terroir-driven AVA in the United States. I hope somebody, you know, that maybe listens to this can contact me and tell me, no, there's one that's better, because I hope there are better ones. I literally hope there are better ones. Uh, but but the Rocks District is one landform. It's a alluvial fan. It's one uh, soil series, 97% free water, uh, free water, very cobbly loam, <laughs> it's called. And it's a very narrow range of elevations 
and fairly consistent rainfall. So I think it really, you know, is about as close as we can get to a terroir-defined AVA, you know, in in this country. So I'm 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 pretty proud of uh, of it. And it's past comment period, and all the comments were favorable. Hopefully, by the end of this year, people can put uh, Rocks District on their on their label of their bottles. So speaking about Washington State as a whole, what are the classic vineyards of Washington State? What are the wow. what are what are those and what should I know about them? One of the classics, I mean a, a very old classic is Shampoo Vineyard, uh Paul Shampoo which, who who's a famous uh with a CH. CH A M P O U X. Uh you know it sounds like a French thing, but Paul Shampoo's a salt of the earth farmer from the Yakima Valley just happens to have a French name. And he has a uh, a vineyard in the Horse uh, Heaven Hills um, that's got some really old Cabernet Sauvignon in it, big old vines that have produced some very high scoring wines. And it's out in the middle of nowhere, you know, and and, and it's not surrounded by any kind of tourist facilities or anything. Um, but there's one block of it, an old block that's up on the side of something called Finney Hill, which is a hill that has a lot of basalt cobblestones in it again. And that block of shampoo that's on the old block on Finney Hill, that's that's an amazing vineyard site. And, and Finney Hill itself, there are other vineyards on Finney Hill. The Finney Hill vineyards are great. The Leonetti's uh, Upland Vineyard is a classic site for great old Bordeaux varietals. The the Cayuse Vineyards, uh, Cayu Vineyard, and um, on Chamberlain and on Cerise, and uh, all and the his vineyards in the rocks. Uh, and Christoph's got a new project about to come online called Horsepower, that has that's all these three by three head trained uh, vineyards, the most dense plantings I know of in North America, all plowed by horses. Those wines are just coming out; they're amazing. I've tasted them pre release, and they're they're pretty amazing wines. There's uh, Ciel de Cheval on Red Mountain and Clipson on Red Mountain. Great, great vineyards on Red Mountain. Old vineyards. I really like the Snipes Mountain AVA, which I didn't mention before. Snipes Mountain's a really interesting AVA. Uh, one family owns most all the land, the Newhouse family and uh, Upland Vineyard. And there's some vines on on Snipes Mountain going back to, I think, 1917. These amazing old gnarly vines. And the terroir there is like nothing else. Uh, there's these amazing uh, rocky uh, soils that are old river channel of the Columbia River, uh, ancient riverbed, and um, I really love the terroir there. So the, the and and a lot of people are making some great wines from Snipes Mountain, Bob Betts, uh, Roti. Um, so the, those Upland Vineyard wines from Snipes Mountain are great. The Lake Helene Vineyard in Walla Walla is some great wines are coming out of that. Seven Hills in Walla Walla, another famous vineyard. That's one I, I've seen the name quite often. What's yeah, it's the an, characteristic of that? Uh, Seven Hills uh, sets up above the valley floor, you know, and so it's protected from a lot of frost and freeze issues. It's got a range of soils from, you know, very deep silts. And as you move up in elevation, the, the soils get thinner and uh, maybe allow the vines to have some contact with the underlying basalt. But it's an old established uh, vineyard that's sort of classic uh, Walla Walla terroir. There's a, oh, there's a great vineyard on the Waluk Slope called Stone Tree. That's the highest elevation on the Waluk Slope. And it's uh, got a lot of alluvial material uh, coming down off the slopes of Saddle Mountain, rolling into it, uh, basalt rocks encrusted with 
calcium carbonate. And I think uh, it's one of the hottest sites in the whole Columbia Basin. They grow great Morved and Tempranillo and uh, a bunch of sort of warm climate grapes there. I've seen some Semillon from the Waluke Slope. Is that in that same zone or a little No, bit? that's lower down. I think... Uh, 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 there's some. There's a bunch of big vineyards uh, on the Waluke Slope. It's probably the driest place there in, in all the Columbia Basin. I mean, it's a true desert, and it's just brutally sunny and hot there all summer long. And there's a vineyard not far away that's not in a sub-appellation called Cold Creek, which is one of Chateau Saint-Michel's oldest vineyards. Uh, and th- there's a lot of big old vines uh, there coming out of Cold Creek. Evergreen Vineyard. Uh, in a new appellation called Ancient Lakes is a sort of a higher elevation, like 1,400, 1,500-foot Riesling, uh, mostly Riesling vineyard, and there's some nice Rieslings uh, coming out of there. Um, yeah, I could go on and on. <laughs> What's the effect of climate change? You have the weather stations, you have data for a long period of time. What do you see? You seeing? know, I, I don't haven't done it. You know, climate change is sort of a, you know, you're looking at, 20, 30, 40 years worth of data before you really start talking about climate change. And my data goes back about 10 years, you know, and I don't really think I can comment on that. I think climate change in the near term is going to be a good thing for Washington because our Achilles heel is frost and freeze issues. You know, it's really good that we're planted, you know, on our own roots, you know, that we're one of the largest areas in the world where vinifera grapes are grown on their own roots. Because that means if we freeze to the ground, what comes back up off the roots is vinifera, right? So you don't have to uh, worry about regrafting or anything like that. And there seems to be no sign of phylloxera spreading into the Columbia Basin. Uh, there are a couple of old uh, Concord grape vineyards in the Yakima Valley that have phylloxera, but it hasn't spread at all over many, many years, and it's shown no sign of spreading. And people say that's because the soils lack clay uh, and also the cold weather, maybe a combination of those two things keeps phylloxera at bay. So we, almost all the grapes are planted on their own roots. Um, you know, if we do have a freeze, they come back. But, you know, if global warming occurs, maybe we'll have fewer freezes. And, you know, and, and uh, most viticulturalists would welcome that, I think. What's the typical vineyard size for Washington State? Are we talking about small parcels, big parcels? Yeah, I think, you know, you're your typical vineyards are in the tens of acres uh and you know there are a few you know a big vineyard is two or three hundred acres and chateau saint michel you know uh who's by far the largest producer has some big thousand acre vineyards you know some in the horse heaven hills uh but you know most of the you know i think cayuse has 60 80 acres of vineyards total a big vineyard in Walla Walla would be two or three hundred acres, something like that. You've discussed a bit of what's going to happen in the near term, but what do you see happening in the far term for vineyard development in Washington State? You know, one sign of that is there's the Californians are coming. You know, Gallo has bought uh, land up there. Uh, Duckhorn has come up uh, lately. Most of the remaining vineyard land in Red Mountain was just. Uh, purchased by the Aqualini Group in Vancouver, uh, who are going to put in a huge development. And, and basically, you know, they'll basically plan out most of the remaining land on Red Mountain. I foresee, you know, uh, I s- there's a lot of growth in Walla Walla right now, uh, several large projects coming in. I think people see Washington, you know, as a place that where the land's less expensive. 
where the wines are fantastic and you can get get land for cheaper. And um, you know, there've been a lot of lot in the news about acquisitions of Washington land by big California firms and also in the Willamette Valley recently. So uh, I, I certainly see growth continuing and probably accelerating. Uh, the limiting factors are, you know, our water. Uh, because for most of the land, you'd have to have irrigation. So being able to uh, to get the water uh, to make it happen is a big thing. Kevin Pogue, he searched for Shangri-La in the Himalayas and may have found it in Washington State. <laughs> Thank you very much for being here today. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Levy. Kevin Pogue, a geologist surveying in Washington State. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.